Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! And now, after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Four members of the far-right Proud Boys, including the group's leader, Enrique Tarrio, have been convicted of seditious conspiracy for their role in the January 6th insurrection. They face decades in prison. We'll get the latest. Then to the rape and battery civil trial of Donald Trump. On Thursday, lawyers on both sides rested their cases without Trump's lawyer calling any witnesses. The cross-examination has drawn on all sorts of myths and misperceptions about how victims behave. And we'll see if the, the jury is able to discard some of that and judge credibility based on um, the, the evidence. And then to freedom to learn. Protests were held across the country this week against right-wing efforts to ban books and anti-racism education in schools. In Florida, 14 members of the Dream Defenders were arrested for staging a peaceful sit-in inside the office of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. So we're going to sit here until Ron DeSantis deigns to come back to his office to meet with the people of Florida who have been directly affected by his nonsense and his hate and his pandering and his petty BS. We'll speak with a Dream Defender as well as Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Fighting in Sudan's capital Khartoum has intensified as the Sudanese army battles the Rapid Support Forces Paramilitary Group for Strategic Locations. The U.N.'s top humanitarian official, Martin Griffiths, arrived in Port Sudan this week, where he called on combatants to allow the distribution of critically needed relief shipments to millions of civilians trapped by the fighting. We need access. We need airlift. We need supplies that don't get looted. World Food Programme today, James, informed me six trucks of theirs, which were going to Darfur, were looted en route, despite assurances of safety and security. So it's, 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 a, it's a volatile environment. The U.N. says the violence has forced 100,000 civilians to flee their homes with critical shortages of food, water, medicine and electricity. In Washington, D.C., President Biden signed an executive order Thursday authorizing sanctions against Sudanese leaders. The order came as the U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, told the Senate panel Sudan's conflict is likely to be protracted as both sides believe they can win militarily and have few incentives to come to the negotiating table. 
In Ukraine, the head of the Wagner Group says he'll pull his Russian mercenary forces out of the besieged city of Bakhmut by May 10th after he blasted Russia's military for failing to provide enough ammunition. Yevgeny Prigozhin said in a statement Wagner's remaining troops will withdraw to logistics camps to, quote, lick our wounds. Meanwhile, the Kremlin has accused the United States of planning what it said was a drone attack on Wednesday aimed at the official residence of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin. The White House dismissed the allegations as ludicrous. A jury in Washington, D.C. has convicted four members of the far-right group Proud Boys of seditious conspiracy and other felonies for their role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection and for attempting to keep Donald Trump in power after the 2020 election he lost. The Proud Boys' verdict is seen as a major victory for the Justice Department. During two previous trials, six members of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers, were also convicted of sedition. We'll have more on the Proud Boys after headlines. ProPublica reports billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow paid two years of private school tuition for the grandnephew of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who failed to report the payments on his annual financial disclosures. Tuition at the Hidden Lake Academy in Georgia cost over $6,000 a month. ProPublica previously reported Crow also paid money to Thomas and his relatives in an undisclosed real estate deal and that Thomas accepted luxury travel from Crow virtually every year for decades while failing to follow a federal law that requires him to publicly report most gifts. Meanwhile, The Washington Post reports conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo arranged for Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, to be paid at least $80,000 for consulting work over a decade ago. Leo asked the Republican pollster at the time, Kellyanne Conway, to bill the payments to a nonprofit group Leo advises and specified that Ginny Thomas's name should be left off any paperwork. That same year, in 2012, the nonprofit filed a brief with the Supreme Court in the landmark case Shelby County versus Holder, in which Thomas cast the deciding vote in a 5-4 to four ruling that gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In Pakistan, at least eight people were killed in two separate shootings in the town of Karam Thursday. Gunmen stormed a government school, opening fire, fatally shooting five teachers and two construction workers. Another teacher was killed after the vehicle was ambushed on a nearby road. No one has claimed responsibility. In Serbia, President Aleksandr Vucic has vowed to completely disarm the country after at least eight people were killed in a mass shooting near the town of Lanmadovic on Thursday. The suspect opened fire from his moving vehicle. Vehicle. He was arrested earlier today. The latest massacre came just a day after a 13-year-old boy went on a rampage at his school in the capital, Belgrade, killing eight students and a school guard. The boy was using guns that belonged to his parents, who have both been arrested. The attacks have sent shockwaves through the Balkan nation, where mass shootings are extremely rare. The last one happened in 2013. Hours before Thursday's shooting, protesters gathered outside the education ministry in Belgrade, demanding justice for for the school shooting victims. I am sincerely sorry that Serbia is now on a list of countries where things like this happen. And it has changed the feeling of going to school for all children and everyone who works there. Some mothers had to send their kids back to class today. How can they explain to children that they can safely go to school? How can we explain it to them? There are no words for something like this. Though Serbia has strict gun control laws, thousands of illegal weapons flooded the streets following the Balkan Wars in the 1990s. 
Back in the United States and Georgia, at least three people were killed in two separate shootings Thursday. The gunman is accused of killing his mother and grandmother at their homes and a McDonald's manager in Moultrie. The suspect then took his own life. This came a day after another shooting in Atlanta that left at least one person dead and four injured. In Oklahoma, authorities said Wednesday they found the bodies of seven people at a home in Henrietta. A man who was convicted of rape and was facing a child sex abuse trial is suspected of shooting dead his wife, his three children, and two teenage girls who were there for a sleepover before taking his own life. The youngest victim was 13 years old. Meanwhile, in California, a former UC Davis student was arrested Thursday in connection with three recent stabbings, including the killings of an unhoused man and another college student. The 21-year-old suspect was charged with murder and attempted murder. The two victims had been identified as David Bro, who was unhoused and a beloved figure in Davis, and University of California Davis senior Kareem Abu-Najim. Wall Street regulators halted trading in shares of PacWest and Western Alliance Thursday after shock prices for the regional banks fell dramatically after the stock prices fell. The plunge raised new fears about the health of the U.S. banking sector following the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank in March and just days after J.P. Morgan Chase purchased First Republic in a fire sale after it became the second largest bank to fail in U.S. history. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds on Thursday pledged to sign a bill rolling back child labor protections. Among other things, the legislation will permit children as young as 14 to work in construction and demolition jobs if a guardian has granted permission. In Washington, D.C., Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders called Thursday for a 32-hour work week <clears throat> with no pay cuts for U.S. workers. Senator Sanders also said he'll introduce legislation to more than double the federal minimum wage from $7.25 to $17 an hour. In the year 2023, in the richest country in the history of the world, nobody should be forced to work for starvation wages. That's not a radical idea. If you work 40, 50 hours a week, you should not be living in poverty. It is time to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. In North Carolina, the Republican-led Senate has passed legislation that would ban most abortions after 12 weeks. Republicans quickly approved the measure less than two days after it was introduced. Democratic Governor Roy Cooper has vowed to veto the bill, but the legislature's GOP supermajority likely has enough votes to override him. Under current North Carolina law, abortions are legal for up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. The state has been a safe haven for many people living in the South who need the procedure as most States in the region banned abortions after the Supreme Court's gutting of Roe v. Wade. Here in New York, protests continue amidst mounting anger over the killing of street performer Jordan Neely, who was choked to death by another subway passenger Monday while being held down by another two riders. Neely, an unhoused 30-year-old black man, was crying out that he was hungry when he was fatally attacked on the train. No one has been arrested or charged despite the death being ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. Neely was a beloved fixture of the New York City subway for his performance 
performances impersonating Michael Jackson. A number of lawmakers have joined the chorus of voices condemning the vigilante-style murder. And Mayor Eric Adams, who's demonized and cut services for home unhoused people and mental illness, will flood while flooding the train system with police. New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams said in a statement, quote, racism that continues to permeate throughout our society allows for a level of dehumanization that denies black people from being recognized as victims when subjected to acts of violence. Any possible mental health challenges that Jordan may have been experiencing were no reason for his life to be taken. And as King Charles prepares for his coronation Saturday, indigenous leaders in former British colonies are calling on the monarch to apologize, pay reparations and, quote, acknowledge the horrific impacts on and legacy of genocide and colonization of the indigenous and enslaved peoples, unquote. They're also demanding the repatriation of the remains and cultural artifacts of indigenous peoples. The letter to King Charles is signed by groups in Antigua and Barbuda, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines. Britain was one of the largest slave traders in the Atlantic in the 18th century. Senior Jamaican government official Marlene Malahu Fort spoke with Sky News Thursday. Why not a full apology? Is it because you may have to give back the wealth? of the monarchy taken from the people, taken from the places that were colonized, taken from the places where the people were enslaved. It's personal for people. The policies that are racist and unjust by virtue of nationality and, and ethnic background and the color of your skin, it's just not right. Minister Malahu Fort said the coronation has accelerated plans for Jamaica to become a republic, with a referendum taking place as early as next year. The coronation ceremony will cost British taxpayers up to $125 million at a time where many are struggling to pay for basic living expenses. This week, the Home Office Police Powers Unit wrote to anti-monarchy groups planning peaceful protests, warning them about new criminal penalties and expanded police powers that were rushed into law ahead of the coronation. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A jury in Washington, D.C., has convicted four members of the far-right group Proud Boys of seditious conspiracy for their role in the January 6th insurrection and for attempting to keep Donald Trump in power after he lost the 2020 election. The jury convicted Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, along with Joseph Biggs, Ethan Nordine, and Zachary Reel, on sedition which could carry a sentence of nearly 50 years in prison. A fifth Proud Boy, Dominique Pizzola, was found not guilty of sedition, but he was convicted, with the others, of numerous felonies, including obstructing an official proceeding and obstructing Congress. During two previous trials, six members of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers, were also convicted of sedition. The verdicts are seen as a major victory for the Justice Department. Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke Thursday. Today's verdict makes clear that the Justice Department will do everything in its power to defend the American people and American democracy. Over the past two years, the department has secured more than 600 convictions 
for a wide range of criminal conduct on January 6th, as well as in the days and weeks leading up to the attack. And now, after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Our work will continue. During the trial, federal prosecutors described the Proud Boys as Donald Trump's army, saying they were, quote, lined up behind Donald Trump and willing to commit violence on his behalf, unquote. Attorneys for the Proud Boys attempted to shift the blame for January 6th solely on the former president. Defense attorney Naib Hassan told jurors, quote, it was Donald Trump's words, it was his motivation, it was his anger that caused what occurred on January 6th in your beautiful and amazing city. It was not Enrique Tarrio. They want to use Enrique Tarrio as a scapegoat for Donald J. Trump and those in power, he said. Tario was convicted, even though he was not in Washington during the insurrection. He had been arrested days earlier in another criminal case. We're joined now by Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost. His book is titled We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Start off, Andy, by talking about the significance of these verdicts, um, four verdicts, guilty verdicts for seditious conspiracy. Right. It's a it's a hard bar to cross because not only did prosecutors have to prove that the Proud Boys impeded uh, or opposed the government by force, but that they had an agreement to do so beforehand. And that last bit uh, was a difficult bar for them to cross. But the prosecutors put together a strong case against them and and proved that uh, the Proud Boys did have an agreement even on the day. Uh, to storm the Capitol. Um, this charge is historically brought against terrorists on American soil. And prior to January 6th, the last successful prosecution was against Islamic militants who were threatening to blow up the UN. So this is the government saying we are very serious. And, and this trial is a bookend to its two highest profile cases uh, for January 6th against the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. And how does this affect the overall um, uh, trials of the January 6th defendants? I mean, we're talking about over a thousand people have been arrested. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and certainly uh, those uh, prosecutions are ongoing. I mean, hundreds have come and there will be many more uh, to, to face prison time over January 6th. But this is uh, the government proving, uh, again, that the argument— that these were sort of hapless protesters uh, in the street fueled by Donald Trump is not a good one. It hasn't worked for any of the other January 6th defendants. It didn't work for the Proud Boys. It isn't working for anybody. And so even though the Proud Boys stated goals are to fight for Trump and to fight for GOP grievances, uh, that's not a valid excuse in front of these juries. Who are the Proud Boys? And talk about Tario in particular, mm -hmm. who was what, in Baltimore at the time? The Proud Boys are a far-right uh, street gang that started in 2016, uh, ostensibly to uh, fight for the GOP's grievances. And uh, during January 6th, they were there um, statedly. Uh, to to have civil war, to have revolution, to have their last stand for Donald Trump. And they continue 
today, even though their leaders are behind bars, they continue today to fight those grievances against LGBTQ people, against drag queens, against women and uh, abortion clinics. And so that part of the Proud Boys remains. They helped foment this atmosphere of political violence we have in this country right now. Tario was the Proud Boys' connection to Donald Trump and his allies. I spoke to Roger Stone, one of Trump's top confidants, who told me in an interview that he'd been advising the Proud Boys for years leading up to January 6th and was a good friend to Tario. Now, during the trial, prosecutors didn't get much into those relationships. Judge Tim Kelly said, you got to stick to the point in these Proud Boys defendants. But that question remains on the table through Tario, how much uh, how close did Tario and the Proud Boys get to Donald Trump's ear directly through people like Roger Stone? Tario is their leader and, and their political factor. And him going behind bars is going to be disruptive, but it's not going to end them completely. I want to go to Carmen Hernandez, an attorney for Proud Boy Zachary Real, speaking outside the courthouse. I don't believe he committed seditious conspiracy. He's a young man who served his country. Um, has never been charged with a crime of violence, has never been convicted of a crime of violence, but the jury has spoken, and that's our system of justice. Very disappointed in the verdict. I think as a society, we turn to criminal law too often. What Mr. Trump did or didn't do is of no moment to me or Mr. Real. But he did, he was the one who called the rally and had everyone show up. Your response, Andy Campbell. Well, all of these defendants absolutely had a big part in gathering resources, equipment, funding, allies to D.C. for January 6th, which one of the defendants, Joseph Biggs, called civil war and revolution. They were ready for something big. And on the day after Trump's fiery speech at the Ellipse, they led the march from there to the Capitol and were the first to breach the Capitol itself. So certainly they have responsibility. But Ms. Hernandez is actually right in the sense that prosecutions aren't the only uh, aspect here that are going to tamp down our extremist crisis, because we still have Proud Boys in the street week after week, along with neo-Nazis and other militants. They still have support from the GOP and from law enforcement and from right-wing media. And until the GOP and those other elements pull their soldiers out of the street and rebuff them, which they have not done since before January 6th or after, we are going to see uh, this kind of thing continue. We're going to see men in, in makeshift body armor and weaponry outside all sorts of American civic events. And so uh, going forward, we're looking for an entire culture shift, not just prosecutions. Can you talk about who testified in the trial? from police officers who were attacked defending the Capitol to FBI agents to some of the Proud Boys themselves. Right. There, there, there were a number of police officers uh, who were testifying in the trial and a police officer who was expected to testify on behalf of the Proud Boys, an officer who had a relationship prior to January 6th uh, with Tario because he was gathering information from the extremist groups uh, uh, amassing there. But that relationship ended up being a little too close. And so this officer pleaded the fifth and it didn't end up helping the Proud Boys at all. 
But the government also secured some key testimony from other Proud Boys who pleaded guilty uh, in lieu of cooperating with the government. One of them is Jeremy Bertino of North Carolina, who had prior to this trial pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy already. Um, and he testified that the Proud Boys were ready to take the reins of that march, of that movement headed to the Capitol that day. A a another Proud Boy named Matthew Green, uh, who testified against his own, called them the tip of the spear that day. Prosecutors put together a really, really good picture of just how much preparation went into January 6th that day. And, you know, while the defense argues that the Proud Boys didn't have a direct plan to storm the Capitol on January 6th, prosecutors showed the jury that that plan, that conspiracy, could have come together the day of on that march. They realized they were surrounded by all of these people. They realized the tools that they had in front of them, and they used that mob to push forward into the Capitol so that they could upend the election. And then, of course, Afterward, there were mountains of evidence and testimony showing that the Proud Boys celebrated what they'd done. They, they, they delayed the certification of Joe Biden as president, and they were super happy about it. So the unindicted um, person here uh, that was brought up by both the defense and the prosecution was President Trump, his famous mm -hmm. um, stand back and stand down comment during the debate. What does this mean for him? Well, uh, certainly, I mean, it shows that the the president was uh, fueling what is now essentially a terrorist cell in the government's eyes. And we know for a fact that after he said stand back, stand by, the Proud Boys began gearing up for civil war for their president. And we know that Trump and his allies and right wing media, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, have refused to rebuff these guys at all to the point where they still believe they have the full support of the president or former president and his allies out in the street. And so this isn't going to mean anything for Trump in terms of charges being thrown his way, I don't believe. But it certainly, uh, you know, adds an underline to the fact that Trump has celebrated and tacitly supported these extremist elements since he took office. And until his politicians around him until the right wing rebuffs them. We are seeing these extremist elements marching today, regardless of the fact that their fellow Proud Boys and Oath Keepers are in prison. And let me correct what I said as you corrected me. Stand back and stand by, President Trump right. said. Right. Um, finally, Andy Campbell, um, what happens to the Proud Boys now? Right. Like I said, unfortunately, the prosecutions are not enough. Uh, the Proud Boys leaders are probably going to go to jail for decades each. And that will certainly put pressure on the organization. But these Proud Boys have always shown resiliency when their leaders go to jail. They are they are working on the behest of the GOP's grievances, not their organization, and not even Donald Trump anymore. They know what they have to do. They have their orders, which is to commit violence for the cause, and they're out there doing it today, every single weekend. And so the organization isn't going away, and our extremist crisis at large isn't going anywhere. We have to uh, 
tell you know the GOP, we have to tell law enforcement, and we have to tell right-wing media to pull these forces out of the street, or else we're going to continue to have this problem going into the next election and just going into regular American civic life. Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost's book is We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Next up, an update on the rape and battery trial of Donald Trump. On Thursday, lawyers on both sides rested their cases. Trump's lawyer did not call a single witness. He claims from Ireland, where he was playing golf, that he's going to testify. That's Trump. Stay with us. Killing in the name of by rage against the machine this week was announced the band is being inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in a statement the band thanked all the activists organizers rebels and revolutionaries past present and future who've inspired our art they said this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump's legal team rested its case Thursday in the rape, battery and defamation trial brought by writer E. Jean Carroll without Trump's lawyer calling a single witness. E. Jean Carroll has accused Trump of raping her in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman in the 90s. She was able to file the civil case against Trump decades later, because New York opened a one-year window on the statute of limitations for adult survivors of sexual assault. In addition to Carol, her legal team called two other witnesses to testify about Trump's pattern of assaulting women. Jessica Leeds testified Trump repeatedly groped her during a flight in the 1970s. This was Leeds speaking years ago. It was a real shock when all of a sudden his hands were all over me. But it's when he started putting his hand up my skirt. And that was it. That was it. Journalist Natasha Stoinoff also took the stand and recounted how Trump allegedly pushed her against a wall, forcibly kissed her during a 2005 interview uh, at Mar-a-Lago. The jury was also shown the infamous Access Hollywood video in which Trump brags about grabbing women's genitals without asking permission. I gotta use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. In a videotape deposition shown to the jurors, Trump was asked about his comments in the Access Hollywood tape. He said, quote, historically, that's true with stars. If you look over the last million years, Trump said. 
Trump also claimed E. Jean Carroll's story was made up and that she wasn't his type. He also said in the tape to the lawyer questioning him in the deposition, you wouldn't be a choice of mine either, to be honest. Trump waived his right to testify in the case, but on Thursday, he told reporters he may return from playing golf in Ireland to testify and confront Carroll. And I have to go back for a woman that made a false accusation about me, and I have a judge who's extremely hostile, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to confront this one. When the judge heard this, um, he said that Trump has until Sunday at 5 to notify the judge if he will uh, reopen the case and testify. Closing arguments are set for next week, with jury deliberations starting Tuesday. For more, we're joined by Deborah Turkheimer, professor of law at Northwestern University, author of Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. Her New York Times guest essay is headlined, The Importance of E. Jean Carroll's Lawsuit Against Donald Trump. Welcome to Democracy Now! Professor Turkheimer, if you can start off by um, responding to what's happened so far in this case. Um, you have—this is a civil case. E. Jean Carroll could bring women who she didn't know, um, who had accused Donald Trump of sexually assaulting them, two of them testified, and two of her dear friends, who she said she told immediately after she said President Trump raped her oh, back in the 90s in a dressing room. Right. I think it's important to say first that the testimony of an accuser is rarely enough to persuade the jury. Uh, that's true inside the courtroom. That's true outside the courtroom. The idea of credibility discounting uh, is a really important one. Credibility discounting is rampant today, and it's been rampant throughout our history. So for E. Jean Carroll to prevail, uh, she's going to need quite a bit of corroborating evidence. She's going to need witnesses who support her story. And that's what we've seen in this trial. Uh, as you mentioned, she's brought in two women who heard her describe this account very close in time to the incident alleged. And then she's brought in what we call pattern of practice witnesses, two women who've described um, sexually aggressive conduct on the part of Donald Trump that allows the jury to see this as part of a, a kind of pattern that he engages in. You couple that with the Access Hollywood tape, and E. Jean Carroll's lawyers have presented a, a powerful case, a case that very much offers the jury support for E. Jean Carroll's story. Now, explain what it means that this is a civil trial. Um, <clears throat> if he is found guilty, what does this mean? And also that at the same time that his lawyer said they rest their case, Donald Trump's playing golf in Ireland saying he's going to testify. Right. So if E. Jean Carroll prevails, Donald Trump is not found guilty per se. He's found liable. He's found liable for damages because, as you mentioned, this is a civil case, not a criminal case. The burden of proof is lower than what we what we understand to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt here. She's got to show by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning it's more likely than not 
that he raped her, as she said he did. Um, and if she does that, if she convinces the jury, uh, then the jury again will award her presumably some damages. Um, the same is true of her defamation claim. What's at issue here is damages. Uh, Donald Trump does not need to testify. It's somewhat unusual, particularly in a civil case, for a defendant not to, uh, to, to present evidence and particularly to tell his version of events that's his right. Uh, he, he's obviously made noise about coming back to court at the 11th hour. I think most commentators and observers are skeptical that he's actually going to do that. But of course, Donald Trump is unpredictable, and we'll wait and see what happens this weekend. Even if he doesn't testify, did it surprise you that not one witness was brought forward by the defense? Yes, uh, the defense had a witness list. It ended up not calling anyone on that list. But again, typically in a civil case, there are two sides and both sides are, are going to present some some witnesses, particularly because the cross-examination of E. Jean Carroll and the cross-examinations of the other witnesses that she called uh, didn't seem to go especially well. One might have expected the defense to present its its own evidence uh, in this case. As, as you've said, uh, the defense did not. And Professor Cherkhammer, why could E. Jean Carroll bring this case decades later? Explain the law that was just passed in New York. New York passed a groundbreaking law. It's called the Adult Survivors Act, the only other state to have passed a law like it dealing with adult survivors of sexual violence is California. And it, it, it went into effect in November of 2022, um, providing a one-year, essentially, look-back window so that there, there is no statute of limitations that bars claims. Uh, plaintiffs can go back in time as far as they want to go back, as long as they were 18 or older at the time of the incident alleged. And they can bring those claims in civil court. They can sue for damages. Um, if you can talk about now what this means and why you think this trial is so important, um, as you talk about in your book, Credible, who is able to bring their cases forward? Well, this is important uh, because, in part, Donald Trump really has come to represent for so many women and other people and a male sexual entitlement. Um, the book is really about a longstanding tradition in our culture of protecting powerful men um, from consequences for sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, and so here we're, we're seeing E. Jean Carroll come forward against all odds many years later, um, believing and hoping that the culture has shifted some, at least enough for her to, to be believed. That's not something that she felt she would have been back in the 90s. Um, but now, post hashtag Me Too, and as the Me Too movement moves along, um, we'll, we'll see whether she's able to get that kind of belief and that kind of justice, a measure of justice, um, it should be said. Again, a civil case. This is not about criminal punishment. This is not being brought by the state. But for E. Jean Carroll to come forward and insist that it happened, that she's not to blame, and that it matters is, is is quite heroic. It's quite brave. Um, and, and we'll be watching, I think, all of us with great interest to see what this jury of nine individuals decides in the case. 
And finally, Deborah Turkheimer, how do you think this case fits into all the other investigations of Donald Trump? It wasn't often included when we talk about the New York attorney general investigating him, the DA investigating him, the Georgia DA investigating him, the federal government investigating him. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Uh, those other investigations uh, focus on Donald Trump's conduct as president, uh, as a business person, um, and as someone who's left the office of the presidency. These are all somewhat extraordinary and unusual uh, kinds of conduct or misconduct that he's alleged to have engaged in. What's so interesting to me about this case is that the kind of allegation that E. Jean Carroll is articulating is so sadly commonplace. It's so it's so widely experienced by so many individuals in our society. Of course, it's extraordinary that the allegation comes against someone who's been president um, and who is the the top contender for the Republican nomination. Um, but. There's so much that's familiar about the allegation and the kind of credibility discounting that's gone on in the case that kept her quiet for so many decades that I think it's um, relatable to, to, to many individuals. And so in that way, it's different from the other kinds of cases, I think. And the jury being anonymous? Yes, I think for, for fairly obvious reasons, uh, the, the judge wanted the jury to remain anonymous. The, the jury itself wanted to be anonymous. Uh, these are, you know, the, these are the kinds of allegations that, um, well, we certainly don't want to see any tampering. We don't want to see any threats against this jury. And um, this is a high profile case, the highest profile case of this sort that we've seen in our history. Uh, and it's really important that the jury is able to do its job. Deborah Turkheimer, professor of law at Northwestern University, author of the book Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. We'll link to your New York Times op-ed, The Importance of E. Jean Carroll's Lawsuit Against Donald Trump. Coming up, Freedom to Learn, protests held across the country against right-wing efforts to ban books and anti-racism education in schools. In Florida, 14 Dream Defenders were arrested, staging a peaceful sit-in inside the offices of Republican governor and possible presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. Back in 30 seconds. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me.
This Joy by Resistance Revival Chorus. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. We end today's show looking at the freedom to learn. This week, protests were held across the United States against right-wing efforts to ban books and anti-racism education in schools. In Florida, 14 Dream Defenders were arrested for staging a peaceful sit-in inside the offices of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and possible 2024 presidential candidate. Also protested new legislation banning abortion after six weeks, denying gender-affirming care for youth, rolling back rent control, banning discussions of LGBTQ issues in schools, and cracking down on immigrants and unions. So we're going to sit here until Ron DeSantis deigns to come back to his office to meet with the people of Florida who have been directly affected by his nonsense and his hate and his pandering and his petty BS. That was Naila Summers-Polite, a co-director of Dream Defenders. She was among the first to be arrested during Wednesday's occupation of Governor DeSantis's office. She's joining us now from Miami. Also with us, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, executive director of African-American Policy Forum, professor of law at both UCLA and Columbia University, joining us from New Orleans. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Naila, let's begin with you. Explain why you were in Ron DeSantis's office, uh, the possible presidential candidate and governor of Florida. Why did you get arrested? Well, Ron DeSantis has been on a rampage with our Florida legislature attacking the rights of all the people in Florida who don't look or think like him. It's been an onslaught of attacks on immigrants, on black people, on drag queens, on queer and trans youth, on renters, on teachers, on union members. I mean, it's just been relentless. Um, and it's the last week of legislative session. Today is actually the last day of our legislative session. And we couldn't end it without, you know, taking courageous action and, and, and being heard. Talk about the various um, bills, one after <laughs> another, made into law that most concerned you, from reproductive rights to anti-LGBTQ legislation to issues of what teachers can teach in school. Yeah, I mean, DeSantis has been going after working class people in Florida against people of color uh, since he first started off in, uh, in office. And so he's been turning the dial, turning up the hate uh, every year. And I mean, the abortion ban, the six week abortion ban, uh, you know, taking books out of classrooms of children, expanding Don't Say Gay till 12th grade. Um, he, they cited the Fugitive Slave Act for a version of an immigration bill that they were trying to pass this year. I mean, it's just undiluted hate. And the entire session, again, has just been a platform for that. And he's attacking so many people um, in his quest to run for president. So it's all concerning. It's all, you know, attacking people, really putting people at risk in the state of Florida. Um, so, yeah, it was it, it was time to, to do a little a little extra, take a lot of action. Professor Crenshaw, if you can put the Florida action, which was one of more than 100 actions across the country, into context, why you helped to organize this nationwide protest this week? 
Well, Amy, as as we've heard, uh, Ron DeSantis and many others in the anti-woke campaign have gone after a number of constituencies. They've gone after uh, the entire infrastructure that has been developed over the last 50 years to actually make equality a real aspiration. That includes the ideas around equality, the very idea that there is such a thing uh, called structural racism, the very idea that intersectional forms of discrimination still shape the futures of all too many people. The time had come to draw a line in the sand. Too many people had been reading about this issue but didn't know how to get involved in it. And I think when the college board took the opportunity after the George Floyd murder to offer a course on African-American studies, to ride the wave of demands for frameworks to help people to understand how 60 years after the passage of civil rights laws, we could all watch a man be choked out by the police on the street. They were driving uh, the possibility for a new course. And at the same time, this was driving the anti-woke cabal like DeSantis to create laws against actually using many of these ideas in public education. These two forces came together when the College Board decided to excise all of these ideas that were in demand from the course after Ron DeSantis said that these were unacceptable ideas. Well, I think too many Americans finally decided that it was unacceptable to allow this censorship to go forward without being heard from. So May 3rd was the beginning. It was the day of action where 150 activities took place all across the country, including two protests at the College Board. It is just the beginning at freedomtolearn.net. People can get a sense of why it was important to draw the line, how they could get involved, and why this is a threat to our very democracy. I want to talk about the Wall Street Journal expose that um, revealed through emails that the College Board's changes to its AP African-American Studies curriculum did not include input from members of its development committee. The article quotes Nishani Frazier, a University of Kansas professor on the African-American Studies Development Committee, saying, we all know this is a blatant lie. In fact, the major changes which occurred came from my unit, and not once did AP speak with me about these changes. Instead, it rammed through revisions, pretended course transformation was business as usual, and then further added insult to injury by attempting to gaslight the public with faux innocence. Uh, Professor Crenshaw, explain the significance of this expose and all that it revealed. Well, Amy, that was a letter written uh, in fire. It basically confirmed what anybody who could actually read uh, actually knew. The, the, uh, the materials that were taken out, including intersectionality, black feminism, uh, black queer studies, the idea of systemic marginalization, um, these ideas were exactly the ideas that DeSantis said uh, were not uh, educationally valuable, um, did not pass muster in uh, Florida's uh, anti-woke uh, legislative uh, terrain. So the fact that the very things that DeSantis didn't like, uh, the fact that those were taken out 
was met by the college board saying, well, we did it uh, with consultation uh, of our uh, experts. And some of the things we took out, uh, we took them out because the ideas had been uh, so um, uh, ins- assaulted by uh, a critique and attack that they were no longer educationally valuable. You could tell that they were not telling the truth, but this was the smoking gun. This was someone on the committee saying, we all know that they were not being truthful and we were basically being thrown out to justify it. The real question is whether there will be any accountability for this. What made the college board think that they could basically say that DeSantis in trying to abide by anti-wokeness had nothing to do with it when they knew there was a paper trail that was going to show otherwise. It's telling us that that the same lack of accountability for taking black lives also potentially applies to taking our voices and our responses to this history of our lives being taken. So that's why so many people were willing to say, not on our watch, enough of this. We're going to hold DeSantis accountable, and we're also going to hold institutions like the College Board accountable as well. And Kimberly Crenshaw, of course, we should say that it was your work on intersectionality. You really have coined this term that has become so powerful, linking so many different movements that was moved out of the required curriculum um, uh, of the African-American advanced placement course. Your response to that? Well, you know, we have to ask, why is it that the ideas that the, uh, the anti-woke cabal are so upset about um, are ideas that people have found incredibly useful? Uh, people all over the world use the basic concept of intersectionality to make sense out of facts. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's a concept. It's a, a, a term. Why do we need it? Well, why do we need grammar? Um, why do we need to have rules to help us understand how to make meaning out of random phenomena? That's what structural inequality helps people understand. That's what uh, black feminism helps people to understand. So taking out these ideas takes out our ability to analyze the situations that we have inherited, and importantly, to plot, to understand, to organize strategies for transformation. If they want to take it away, it's because it's important. Just like they want to take our votes away because that's important, they want to take our voices away because that's important. That tells us where we have to take the fight. I want to turn to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida telling reporters in February why he opposed the original AP African-American Studies course. And Nayila, I want to get your response. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. And last April, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law House Bill 7, also known as the Stop Woke Act, which he claimed will take on critical race theory in the workplace and in schools. We believe an important component of freedom is the, in the state of Florida is the freedom from having oppressive ideologies opposed upon you without your consent, whether it be in the classroom or whether it be in the workplace, and we decided to do something about it. 
So, Naila Summers Polite, you got arrested over his views this week uh, because you were protesting them in his office. Your response? I mean, I think it should tell us uh, what kind of man Ron DeSantis is. He's unabashedly hateful. Uh, he is doing his very best to split up, split us into silos. I mean, what? It's like he's never heard of Bayard Rustin. It's like he's never heard of of so many black queer pioneers like Marsha P. Johnson. I mean, he just he, he thinks it makes it easier to pick us off. Uh, if we are fighting in silos. So really what we were doing in his office on Wednesday was we were made up of all the kinds of people he's been attacking. We were queer. We are black. We are immigrants. We are uh, people who need abortions. We're teachers and union members. And so we're not going to let him split us up or silo us off. Uh, what Dr. Crenshaw was saying about intersectionality is is exactly it. Like we need a multiracial movement to to beat people like Ron DeSantis and the Greg Abbotts and the Sarah Huckabee Sanders, all these sort of new Confederate anti woke people. Um, so yeah, this is what he's doing on his on his uh, trek to the White House. He's 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 spewing this kind of nonsense. Um, and you know we've got to fight back against it. We've got to come together and really resist. Uh, this kind of rhetoric. And Dr. Crenshaw, do you think people are taking what is happening across the country, what the Missouri legislature uh, voting, uh, that they might defund the libraries? Llano County, Texas, saying when a judge said you have to keep the books on the shelves, saying we'll just shut down our library system. Um, how many books are now being taken off the shelves across this country? Do you think progressive forces, perhaps the majority of people in this country, are taking this seriously enough? Well, Amy, I think they finally are. I mean, one thing we know is that the majority really is on our side. Americans don't like censorship. They don't like the idea that there are certain things that they're told that they're not able to read. And they especially don't like being told that they're doing this or they're being told because they're fighting indoctrination. There's indoctrination at at foot in saying that these are ideas that are so dangerous, so divisive to the republic that the autocrats can dictate whether we can engage them. Look, the whole point of academic freedom, the whole point of education is to present material for people to engage in, to develop critical thinking about the world in which they live. Yet the DeSantis's and the anti-woke cabal have the exact opposite orientation. Look, I have no worries whatsoever about people being exposed to ideas that are critical of intersectionality or of critical race theory or of structural racism. I know the ideas are strong and powerful enough to survive debate. But when the response to ideas that they don't like, including democracy itself, is to try to suppress these ideas, well, that's when we have a problem. And I think now many Americans are waking up to it. 
it was slow. They thought that it was just about something called critical race theory without understanding that critical race theory was the entire infrastructure that allowed people to identify racial inequality, racial power as a problem that still undermines our democracy. Mm -hmm. Now, with the College Board doing what it did, people are seeing that the fight is against the anti-woke cabal and the fight is also against institutions who need to be putting their money where their mouth is. You can't be pro-freedom of education and pro-anti-woke at the same time. The, the lines are drawn, and they're going to have to choose a side. Uh, we just have 10 seconds, but Dr. Crenshaw, I saw you on Tuesday night. We did not know at the time what was happening um, at Broadway Lafayette subway stop, but Jordan Neely was killed by another passenger. He was black. He was unhoused. You tweeted, being black and poor in America should not be crimes punishable by vigilante death. And that is exactly the question about how the lack of accountability for taking black lives extends to this current moment. We have to worry not only about police officers taking our lives, but individuals thinking that they're empowered enough to exact discipline to exact lethal punishment for the possibility that they might be uh, uh, in fear of someone who well, needed help rather than needed death. Kimberly Crenshaw, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Executive Director of African-American Policy Forum Professor at UCLA and Columbia University. By the way, a very happy birthday to you. And thank you so much. Thank you. To Naila Summers Polite of